Some of you were probably wondering why I didn't do my whole lamentation setup for uh, Man of the People. It's because I wasn't really decided if it deserved lamentation status until I actually talked through it. And once I did, yeah, I, 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 it totally deserved to be a lamentation. It was a terrible episode that was terribly constructed and just kind of awful and had no idea what it was doing. It didn't have good acting. It didn't have good anything. And was meandering and boring and slow and offensive and terrible and awful. But I had to talk that out to really get that across, especially since I had so little to say about it, right? Believe it or not, I had to think about this one for a while, but this time I decided to do my thinking in advance to go ahead and be like, all right, let's go ahead, let's think about it, let's process it, let, let's try and, and decide. And I even uh, pinged some people in my Discord. I was like, all right, guys, what do you think? And you know what's funny? They all said Rascals did not deserve Lamentation status. I'm like, all right, why? And the only answer I got back was basically that the theme of the work was good and that it was enjoyable to watch uh, the kids act. And I was like, okay, okay. And I thought about it, and I actually spent quite a while. Like, I finished the episode. Usually what I do, I finish watching the episode. Uh, actually, let me rewind a second. I do the behind-the-scenes stuff first. You know, I, I read my books. I read my other book. I read my other, other book. I read my magazines. I check the wiki, which I actually have up here for a reason. And then I'm like, okay, you know, I got all my behind-the-scenes stuff. Watch the episode. I, I jot down notes on my paper as I'm doing it. And then as soon as the episode's done, I chop it down. And because of the way I do this, I already have everything set up. So I can just hit record and I immediately go to the episode. Here I spent like a good 15 minutes after the end of the episode thinking, does this deserve lamentation status? And the thing is, I'm sure some of you are going to disagree with me on this, and that's fine. But ultimately, for me, this is just a crap episode. I understand why it's a crap episode. It's mostly because, well, allow me to share with you a quote, if I may. This is from Ronald D. Moore, who was the one who had to basically script Doctorus into an actual teleplay. Uh, in point, in fact, quite a few people worked on the writing of this episode before they just handed it to Moore and said, here. And I quote, When Michael Piller bought the premise, I thought he was completely insane. An away team rematerializes on the transporter as children with adult minds. I tried again and again to bury this idea, which of course meant that I would get saddled with the inevitable rewrite when the script came in. I just thought it was such a ludicrous idea and wanted nothing to do with it. That said, once I got the assignment, the professional writer and me had to commit to the material and do the best that I could, so I tried very hard to bring humor and humanity to the proceedings, chiefly through the Guinan Rowe story that I did end up liking in the end. I still cringe when I think of the episode, parentheses, the Ferengi capture the Enterprise and a couple of broken-down birds of prey, parentheses, but many people have told me how much they like it. So in short, if you like this episode, no judgment. And I will freely admit that I can see why some people would like parts of this episode. But I don't. I don't like this episode. Let's tear it apart. First problem. <clears throat> Picard has an artificial heart. According to the episode's nonsense logic, which actually uh, Mr. Shankar, who I have since discovered, by the way, is in fact a guy and not a girl, because <laughs> it mentions he... In his interviews here, Mr. Shankar flat out says, yeah, no, this, this is total nonsense. And we can't explain this. And apparently there was actually significant effort in the writer's room to try and come up with a technical explanation for how this happens. You know what they came up with? This is total nonsense and nothing we say will make any sense. So we give up. And so they techno babbled through it. 
Now, I sympathize, because this is total nonsense, and there is no way to explain it. The catch is, though, that's still basically bad writing. I mean, it, it, it's understandable. I would do the exact same thing. I would probably go into the realm of complete nonsensical just to MST3K my way through this, because this is nonsense. So I don't really blame the writers and the writer's staff who couldn't come up with an explanation here, but I do blame the episode for failing fundamentally at trying to explain this. Let's just think about this from a simplistic perspective. Picard has an artificial heart. He's human, and he's in, like, his 50s or whatever, right? 60s? I don't know. He's, he's, he's somewhere along the line, okay? Rolaren is Bajoran, a completely different species, who also happens to be substantially younger. Then we have Guinan, who is an Elorian, who is older by a factor of centuries. And then Keiko, who is a human and younger. And all of them get shrunk to roughly the same age, in roughly the same rate, by nonsense. I'm not even willing to call this magic confetti. This is just pure nonsense. Now, you think that's bad. Early on, the episode kind of makes it feel like the big theme, the, uh, the wrong word, the big threat of the episode is they might keep de-aging, like this might be a recurring problem. End of the episode, no problems. We'll just run you back through the transporter. Now, what's really funny is this is continuity. You remember Unnatural Selection? Pulaski, they de-aged her by running her back through the transporter, which had which used her DNA and records of her younger DNA to to youthify her. So this is the fountain of youth then, forever. <laughs> I'm being serious, by the way. That's two episodes of TNG that both postulate you can use the transporter to de-age and then re-age yourself, just like that including an artificial heart, regardless of species. <laughs> this is nonsense. Oh, it also doesn't affect the mind, which I'm not even going to begin to explain how utterly, incredibly insane it is that the mind would be totally unaffected by something that would fundamentally change every single other part of your body, including the things immediately adjacent to and connected to the mind. So, okay, we've established this as nonsense. And I hear you saying, Lore, dude, you yourself believe in the cloud effect. Terrible premise, good execution. You're right. Um, it, re it requires that good execution part, though. It requires you to go somewhere with it. So... Um, I don't even know where to start. David Birkin plays young Picard, and he does the best he can. At no point in time do I feel he's Picard. <laughs> I know, I know, it feels almost cheap to complain about the child actors. But at the same time, that's on the episode. It, it, let me put, let me explain this a little bit. Child actors are harder to work with. Duh. Child, there, there's limitations for how often they can film. There's limitations in what they can do. They don't know their craft as well. They're not as experienced. Blah, 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 right? It, it's like having a child Formula One driver, which is not a thing, by the way. At least it shouldn't be. You know, they're simply not going to be as experienced, and there are rules that should be in place to deal with that. So, it makes sense that there it would be harder to do anything with children actors. It, it, people have come up with interesting and inventive ways over the decades in order to try and work with child actors, to try and basically pull a performance out of them that they don't know how to do. 
right, to, to, to give them very specific stimuli so that they will then perform in a way that, you know, they don't know how to do. If you just tell them, I want you to be this and this and this, they're going to be like, okay, and they're not going to really do it, right? And I mean, no offense to Adam Nimoy, who was handed this episode, just, oh, of all the first episodes to be handed, my God. So, <clears throat> David Birkin does a, as much of a job as he possibly can with his role. But at no, usually when a character is replaced by another actor, I can hear the voice in the lines. I've actually mentioned that in yesterday's Enterprise uh, with the Captain, uh, Captain Farrad or whatever it was, of the Enterprise C. Like, so much of her dialogue sounded like Picard, if you divorce yourself from it. None of, none of Birkin's lines sounded like Picard to me. I could kind of see it with Guinan, and I could see it with Roe. And I do want to stress that that's probably the least bad aspect of the episode. It's probably worth noting that the actress who played young Guinan, did I write down her name? Uh, I did, Isis Jones, was actually already playing a young, uh, Whoopi Goldberg in the movie Sister Act, which came out the same year. So she kind of already had this going for her. She, she kind of knew how to do her craft. And that's probably why she works out better than most of the other ones. So I'm watching this episode, right? And after the first bundle of nonsense, I'm like, okay, we've gotten past the nonsense. Whatever. Let's go ahead and move forward. And we get to the part where Picard insists on being treated normally. That's the first way the episode loses me. Because I don't buy for a millisecond that Picard would not willingly and knowingly remove himself from command, given the circumstances. If he had just lost his arm, he would do the exact same thing. A substantial and significant physical change that he's going to have to mentally cope and deal with that he's not even sure of the long-term ramifications of yet. Of course he would. But no, instead Crusher has to basically talk him down into it. I don't buy it. I mean, I might have seen that back in Season 1 and 2, when his pride was at the forefront of his mind, but by Season 6, there's no way. So that's problem number one. Then we get to problem number two. Nobody actually mentions this uh, that I noticed, but puberty's a real problem. I know that sounds like a strange thing to comment on, but puberty does things to your brain. It's like, kind of part of the point, is that it's supposed to be part of your body maturing into the final phase of its existence, basically, right? I mean, that's massively simplified, but you get the idea. And you want to put someone who is going through puberty in charge of a ship. There's actually an entire episode of Deep Space Nine about how bad of an idea that is. I forget the name of it. It's the Red Squadron episode. You know the one I'm talking about. It's by, it's by Moore. <clears throat> then, then, you know, the first thought I had, actually, before we, we, we jump into the, into the death hole of Doom, is... They're just in a shuttle, and this field comes out of absolutely nowhere. And I know what you're thinking, well, yeah, dangerous things happen in space. Yeah, that's why I was so weirded out they just gave a shuttle to Scotty. For all we know, he'd be like, oh no, energy field, and no one would ever know what happened to him. Anyways, sorry. All right, let's jump into the weeds. Keiko. There is an enormously uncomfortable scene with Keiko and her husband who is being played by the actor who plays O'Brien. Funny fact, this was actually O'Brien's last appearance on TNG, not counting all good things. Uh, actually, by this point in time, they'd already start working on... Um, oh, I can't think of the name of it. It's, like, it's actually the third episode of DS9. Like, they were working on filming that episode 
right around when this episode was being filmed. So this, you know, O'Brien's like, okay, I need to officially shunt over to D Space Nine. I, I got another job, guys. And they stopped writing O'Brien into scripts. Same thing with Keiko, actually. <laughs> Even though canonically, in the show sense, they wouldn't switch over until uh, like five or six episodes from now. Anyways, uh, yeah. Why was that scene in this script? And I know what you're thinking. Well, that's a serious issue that has to be addressed in proper... No, 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 no. First point. It's awkward and uncomfortable, okay? That's the first point. Second point. One of the weird things I've noticed is some people will justify things by saying, well, in-universe it makes sense because magic or because fantasy or because science fiction. The catch is, and I've said this many times, you always have to perceive what it's going to be seen like in real-life terms. Now, this is going to sound like a strange example, but I'm going to point to the Twilight series as one of the penultimate examples of this. Now, there's two examples from that franchise that I could point to, and I'm not going to actually mention either. If you're familiar with the Twilight franchise, you probably know where I'm going with this. But even though it's explained in-universe, and even though it makes sense in-universe, and even though it's acceptable in-universe, over here in reality land, we can't help but look at that and go, Huh? That's just... Yeah, really? I'm not even talking about the quality of the Twilight franchise. That's, that's not even a part of this. The point is the sensibility of it. Now, you could argue you shouldn't have to take into mind real-life sensibilities when working your fictional works. And that's up to you. I disagree. So that's problem number two. Here's problem number three. It doesn't do anything. It's probably the only serious element of the show. That's not true. There's two serious scenes in the show. Trying to showcase how bad this is. No, I'm serious. Hear me out for a second. Well, some people would obviously be like, oh man, I'm young again. If you really think about it, if that was forced upon you without your choice, all of the sudden, and with no forewarning, well, to be perfectly blunt, that is a violation. Not a deliberate violation by some external force, as we usually think of that, but it's a violation of you. You are now fundamentally altered. It's effectively a major life-changing accident. I didn't make the arm chopped off reference earlier on accident. Imagine for a moment if just your arm was chopped off. That's a big change to your life. And you're going to have to completely alter how you function to deal with that. And that's the same general idea here. You're now a child. Now what? And yet, the only two times they try to address that at all is with Keiko and with Picard. Now, with Keiko, they kind of try to, but they fail at it. Because instead, the whole thing just comes across as, oh, well, we'll work it through. Like, there's no connection. There's no dilemma. There's no what she's going through. And there's no what he's going through. Instead, it's just this weird, awkward scene. Now, to prove I'm not being unfair here, by contrast, when she goes to comfort her daughter, Molly, by the way, quick note, Molly should be like a little over a year old at this point. No, I'm being serious. Date is day to this episode. Think about it for a minute. Anyways, <clears throat> when she goes to comfort her daughter, her daughter doesn't recognize her. Of course she doesn't. A child doesn't have the cognizance to say, my mother has been de-aged and, and process that like an adult could. Instead, all she sees is a stranger. That hits home. That actually hurts. Especially the reaction that young Keiko has to that. And of course, O'Brien is like, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll read you a story tonight, Molly. And Molly's adorable as she always is. <clears throat> then we cut to the Picard thing. Now, what I like about this in its own way, at the beginning of the episode, yeah, I know, something I like about an episode that's a lamentation. Sue me. What I like about it is they show Picard's enthusiasm for archaeology at the beginning, which is something we've already known is something that will continue to develop, including 
uh, up to, I believe, the chase, which I think is the season. Anyways, and he is being told, you know, obviously your career has just been jettisoned, but remember, he actually considered taking a career in archaeology instead of a career in Starfleet, and Starfleet barely won out. So now he has the option to actually go into archaeology and really make a career of that. And it's a nice scene because it, again, helps to emphasize how big of a life change this is, how, they're, how they should be struggling with this. This should be a character piece. Instead, it's a, it's a nothing, actually. It's a, it's a high-minded piece that shifts into a threat of the week, once again, by the way, that then shifts into, oh, by the way, we also got an A-plot, B-plot going on, but anyways, that then shifts into a comedy. Now, I'm not saying an episode has to have one tone throughout the whole thing, but it just lurches between these perspectives, which, of course, brings me to my next point. 23 minutes and 25 seconds into the episode, two Klingon bird of praise show up and take down the Enterprise. Now, I already mentioned that the writer, the guy who had to revise this script, and get us our final teleplay. Hated this. Hated it. I've been there. Not as a writer. Obviously, I'm, I'm not a professional writer on any level. But how many times have you been handed something that you either disagreed with or hated, and it is now your job to do the best you can with something ridiculous and awful? That used to happen to me all the time back in IT. And I'm sure a lot of you can relate to that as well. So to be clear, as weird as this may sound, I don't actually blame Ronald D. Moore for this episode, or even most of the writers. You know who I blame for this? Michael Piller. Piller bought the episode. Piller pushed the episode. And near as I can tell, what he did... No, keep in mind that this is when Jerry Taylor is supposed to be in charge, and yet she's not mentioned at all in the production of this episode. Instead, only Piller is mentioned. I get the really strong impression that he either, A, thought it was a neat idea and wanted to push it, and just was wrong, or B, how do I put this, he stamped something on his desk without realizing what it was, and it got pushed through. Keep in mind, at this point, as I mentioned earlier, DS9 was well into production. They were working on their second episode already. Like, as in, they'd finished Emissary, and they were now working on episode two. Uh, actually, three, but whatever, you get the point. So, I get the very strong impression Pillar, who had fully moved over to Deep Space Nine as of now, as of the production of this episode, just rubber-stamped something and didn't really look at it. And now everyone was left to deal with the consequences, because it's not like you can change an episode at the last minute. Like, that's not really a thing. That's <laughs> it's one of the reasons why Man of the People was such a disaster. One of the reasons. So, at 23 minutes and 25 seconds, the Bird of Praise show up. Now, I want to point a couple things out. This is when the episode... Like, up till this point, I was like, okay, maybe I've been too harsh. I mean, this isn't good by any measure, and it's stupid nonsense, but it's at least just whatever. This is when the episode dives into lamentation status for me. Let's go down the facts, shall we? First of all, these are Burrell-class Bird of Praise. Several of you, rightly, pointed out that some of the previous Bird of Praise were actually cavorts or otherwise, because there's like six classes of Bird of Praise that all use literally the exact same model because of cost-saving whatevers. It irritates the crap out of me, but Worf straight up calls these Burrells. The Burrell, in the off chance you're not familiar with it, is the same Bird of Prey from back in Star Trek Three. Search for Spock. That piece of junk from 80 years ago is a Burrell-class bird of prey. And these things take down the Enterprise-D effortlessly. 
and they're not even being controlled by Klingons. Do you happen to remember, I hope at least some of you have been following the series with me, I made a comment all the way back in Survivors, I think is the name of it. It's right at the beginning of Season 3. You know, Uxbridge, uh, the, the Husnok. In that episode, I made a comment that they made a point of showing what is effectively an alpha strike, a full spread of phasers and torpedoes against the Husnok ship. And I, I spent like several minutes talking about how significant that was because it was a change in mentality for the creation of the show. And that change has been pretty consistent up until most of Season 5, where the Enterprise is shown to be a decently equipped cruiser, which it is, a heavy cruiser, no less. So then we have this episode. You know how many times the Enterprise fires on the two birds? I actually paid attention. Once. With one phaser. This is insulting. I'm sorry to make such a big deal about this, but it's kind of critical. This isn't some little tiny nitpick. This isn't, oh gosh, they forgot which room was which deck or whatever. The entire episode hinges on the Ferengi taking them out. And instead of bringing out two, oh, I don't know, marauders, because Ferengi marauders are actually pretty decent combat craft, they decided to bring in, well, what they did was they showed identical footage from uh, yesterday's Enterprise. So they were two birds. And they even put into the dialogue that they're Burrells. So 80-year-old ships, piloted by Ferengi, take down the Enterprise effortlessly. And this brings me to something I wanted to share with you, if you don't mind my doing so. This strategy does follow a pattern established by many of the Enterprise engagements. This pattern can even be seen in Star Trek Generations, another movie combat scene I have complained about endlessly. It goes something like this. Let the enemy ship hit you about 200 times, then ask war for a damage report. Let the enemy ship hit you another 200 times, and then ask for shield status. And then let the enemy hit you 200 more times, then fire back once, then do some fancy flying, and begin the cycle again. Now, I'm sorry. I know that we don't want these people to be military, and we don't want them to kill people, but if their ship is under attack by pirates, they don't know they're pirates yet, but their ship is under attack. So I'm pretty sure they can fire back and destroy those two birds, probably in, I don't know, I'm thinking five seconds. I'm pretty sure a concentrated volley at each, shot at the same, shot in one volley, so they just split the volley into two, could take out those ships in, again, seconds. Instead, they fire back once. And I'm, I'm sorry to harp on this so hard, but this, again, is critical for the episode. In fact, I decided to write down my own iteration of this. So, they're hit. Then they prepare to fire back. Then they're hit. Then there's a report. Then they lock phasers. Then they fire. Once, with one phaser. Then they report. And then they get the status. 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 And then they've been boarded. I'm dead serious, by the way. I, each one of those. It's like, first, there's the report from Worf, and then there's like status from Data, and then there's like status from... Wharf on something else, and then there's like a status from engineering, and then there's a status from data again, and then they find out they're being boarded. <sighs> this might literally be the most pathetic showing I have ever seen in Star Trek. 
And I do not say that lightly, because Star Trek generally doesn't know how to do space combat. Occasionally it does. Occasionally it's great. And then we have this. So then we find out they're Ferengi. Now, this is important. Remember that by this point in the franchise, they have abandoned the idea of the Ferengi being a threat. Instead, the Ferengi are a joke. Full tilt, no, heart, no holds barred, a joke. Even in this episode, the Ferengi are a joke. Yet they effortlessly take over the ship, including the bridge, which has both Worf, Data, and Riker on it. Go ahead, explain that one to me. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Just a few episodes ago in um, Power Play, I commented on how pathetic Worf was. You know, where he, he dives in and announces attack and barely hits anyone with his phaser. I mean, come on, Worf. This is actually even more pathetic. He fires, misses completely, doesn't even graze the Ferengi, and then gets knocked out by the Ferengi. And um, Data, who is superhuman, super fast, and super smart, gets disarmed and taken, basically taken in hostage within seconds. You know what the funny thing is? Almost immediately after the Ferengi effortlessly defeat the, the Enterprise crew, they start squabbling amongst themselves because they're a joke, remember? The only Ferengi who didn't seem to get the memo of being a joke was the leader, who, who plays him as if he is a pirate. As if he is a cutthroat, horrible, evil pirate. Not a poirate, to be clear. A pirate. A disgusting, despicable being. So, um, the rest of the episode is basically kid antics, because after the Ferengi have effortlessly taken over the Enterprise, it makes sense, I suppose, that the kids, I stress this, the children, effortlessly retake the Enterprise. Now I know what you could say. Laura, that's not fair. I mean, that's Picard and Roe and Guinan and Keiko. But other than Keiko, that is a, that's actually a heck of a crack team. Okay, valid. But the method by which they do so is by doing kid antics. Like Alexander's little bit. Here, I think you, I think you dropped something. They don't... I suppose you could argue what else could they do. I should, I should probably also mention that I mentioned the pirate thing earlier. He actually threatens to murder all the children on the Enterprise. And he is uh, attempting to enslave all of them to send them down to the mines down below and sell the Enterprise to the Romulans. So I'm not sure where they're going with that because the last part of the episode is clearly comedic in approach and tone. Just look at Picard's thing. I want my father. I want my father. And of course, Riker's thing. Now, okay. In defense of this episode, there is one thing. It's actually two scenes that actually got me to laugh. And I'll go ahead and give you this episode. And it's Riker fake explaining how the computer works to the Ferengi. That actually worked pretty well and was legitimately funny. So, whatever. Um... So then the kids do it, and then they defeat the threat of the week. And I want to stress that point, because the threat of the week shifted from being, you know, will they stay young or get younger, to the Ferengi. So once again, we not only have the A-plot, B-plot format, but also a threat of the week. And two lamentations in Season 6. And I stand by those. 
This is also a season that has included Relics, which despite its flaws was amazing, and will also include Chain of Command. Um, God, I don't even know what else. Hang on, what else is in Season 6? Let me, let me pull up a list here. Let's just look at this. We've got uh, Relics, which is great. We had Schisms, which was mostly good. We're going to have Chain of Command. We're going to have Face of the Enemy, which I love. Tapestry, one of my favorite episodes. Birthright Part 1, which is which is great in its own right. Uh, Frame of Mind, which is amusing. Timescape, which is phenomenal. It's looking more and more like my from memory perspectives on Season 6 were actually accurate. I guess we'll find out. What's the, what's the next episode? Hang on, what do we got next coming up next year? Fistful of Datas. Okay. We'll see what we think of that when we get there. I'll see you next time, guys.